Hi, everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Lindsay Baroker. And I'm Joe Lalo. And this is kind of crazy. This is episode 52. We've been on the air for a whole year now, except we did release a few episodes early. So not a whole year, but 52 episodes represents 52 weeks. How does that feel, guys? (laughs) I feel like we actually started in October last year. Is that because we pre-recorded them? No, yeah. I think our first episode came out in like September. Towards the end. Go ahead, Joe. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. (laughs) Just great. It's good times. I like milestones. Thanks. Yeah. Go ahead. (laughs) I guess we're done with the banter, the pre-show banter. So uh, continue on. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, we actually started before I released Shadow Prophet because I was like, hey, fantasy authors, should we do a newsletter swap with me for my release? And that went smashingly. (laughs) No sarcasm, right? Uh, Anyway, so we decided that we wanted to do another mistakes episode. We did one in uh, episode 20. um, And like, I don't know, one thing that I've discovered as an author, it's nice to hear when successful authors screw up (laughs) because it helps, helps make them feel human. And so we want to do that. We wanted to sound human for you guys because we are. And um, hopefully something will be helpful and will help you not make the same mistakes. So um, we're going to go right into it. I hope that's okay with the two of you. And um, Joe, if you wanted to go ahead. Sure. Um, so I guess uh, I should bring up, well, we're going to talk about the mistakes we made the last five years first. And uh, because most of my mistakes last time we talked about this were piled up on my release. Um, so... I'm going to talk about Shards of Shadow, my urban fantasy release. I've spoken about things that went wrong with it in the past, but it's sort of the key uh, mistake that I made. I'll have some more mistakes later, don't worry. But uh, it, my Shards of Shadow release was not great, and it was not great for a number of reasons. Uh, it's urban fantasy, for those who didn't follow it, it's, just, it's development. Uh, urban fantasy's got some pretty stiff competition, and that's sort of true of every genre, but very true of urban fantasy. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, like traditional pubs that are still doing a ton of urban fantasy. And, and, you know, just in general, that means that it's going to be harder to market because the keywords and everything like that, a, a, the successful ads are slicing a lot thinner because a lot more of them are being run. So already it was going to be more difficult. Um, I also, it was my first release, my first series release to be Amazon exclusive. And I didn't take the time to build up my Amazon exclusivity chops. Like I've done this pod- podcast, obviously, and I, I, I spoke to a lot of people and I had all the techniques in place, but I was still trying to do it as sort of a hybrid thing because my assumption was most of my fans are accustomed to me being wide. And even though a great majority of those fans, well, I can't say a great, but even though a lot of those fans uh, buy my stuff on Amazon, most of them aren't uh, Amazon exclusive. Like they don't use KU necessarily to buy my stuff because it's usually not available there. So I tried to cater to the uh, to people who didn't use Amazon exclusively. And that made for a very weak release because, uh, for example, I did a pre-release bundle with Story Bundle, which went reasonably well. I think I sold over 500 copies as part of that. But I can't assume that all 500 of those people uh, would not have bought it any other way. <laughs> like some of the people who would have bought it on Amazon bought it as part of the bundle anyway because they wanted it early. And that's, you know, day one sales that I didn't make. And uh, so that's not great. 
I similarly, I believe this was a part of uh, my Patreon. I think Patreon was running at that time. And that's only probably a dozen people got that way, but it's another, you know, it undercut those that release too. And uh, the other thing that I think was a pretty major mistake I made with this one is that I gambled way too much on it. Like I wrote, this is my first rapid release. So I wrote all of them stacked up and I, I basically took three or four months straight of, of focusing entirely on the development of an entirely new series. And as a result, I sort of let everything else slide. There were obviously weren't any releases in any of my other series. And I was busy doing research and getting ready the promotions that would be used to the, to, to do the launch for the new series. So I wasn't keeping up promos on earlier stuff. So it caused a pretty big dip in just my overall author, you know, gravitas. My, my footprint got smaller. And then I released with a bad launch and it just all sort of piled up to produce a really bad launch overall. And I really haven't financially, I haven't recovered from that yet. Like I'm, I, I have gotten some of my footing back, but it was a, it was a, a permanent hit. Uh, uh, and I should say also, I had read an awful lot of urban fantasy. So I felt as though I understood what people were looking for in urban fantasy, but I made a classic mistake. We've mentioned other in other episodes where I only knew what I looked for in urban fantasy. I didn't bother going and checking what elements people expect to be part of urban fantasy. And thus I didn't hit all the tropes right on the nose. Uh, obviously that only hurts sell through. It doesn't hurt the sales of the first book unless I did a really bad blurb and I mentioned all the things no one wants and all the things everyone wants. But uh, generally speaking, like I really uh, hamstrung the chances for this series for a broad audience uh, because I didn't focus tightly upon the tropes in, again, a very well-defined and, and popular genre. And also, I overestimated how many of my fans would follow me over into this genre because I have a lot of sci-fi fans. I have a lot of uh, fantasy fans, but not necessarily everybody who reads sci-fi or fantasy is going to like urban fantasy. It's a very specific thing. Uh, so yeah, that was sort of, it was a, a collage of bad ideas that came together into that release. Yeah. We'll just start right out talking about, <laughs> we're not just going to start with the little things. Let's please, let's talk about the mistake that sunk my year. Um, but no, I just wanted to say too, that I think that's great because not that's not great. Joe, that's great that you're sharing this because, uh, you know, we're all like rapid release is great guys. You should all do rapid release if you're a fast writer and you can do it. But it is a good point that if you're going to pause and take the time to write three or even five novels before you start publishing, because you want to put them out one month after the other that yeah you're not working on your other series during this time or you know even if you had completed your old stuff there's gonna be a gap before you have the new stuff out and uh yeah that, it's a gamble when you're going to a new genre too that you don't have a readership in um, i want to let andrea chime in too but I'm, I'm curious if there's looking back now how would you have done it differently i definitely would have uh, like structurally, the series would have been a little bit different. The series doesn't focus on a private investigator, which everything else about it in, would have been served by a PI, but instead it was a photographer because there's this whole light and darkness thing I was trying to do. So trope-wise, I would have restructured it a little differently. I definitely would not have done the introductory bundle. I probably would have saved the bundle for when I eventually went wide after a year, as opposed to doing the, the bundle and, and, and basically 
shifting hundreds of day one sales over onto a non-ranking site. And uh, other than that, I probably would have hedged my bets a little bit and made sure that I kept some promotional stuff going to the other series as opposed to doing all or nothing on the new release. So yeah, just a, a little note about the rapid release thing. Um, like something I've recognized, I've, I've discovered is a lot of people are like, yes, we need rapidly, rapid release, rapid release. But if it's not what readers want, then it doesn't matter what you do. Um, and that's not necessarily a reflection on what you did. Um, but I was, I like rapid released a whole bunch of short stories and I did like one every two weeks for months and it didn't, you know, didn't really <laughs> do anything because my readers don't care about short stories. Anyway, there's a market for short stories, but it's not generally like in my market. Um, so my question, actually, I was wondering, we've talked a lot about your launch and my launch. It's really funny that both of us, our last urban fantasy launches were like, the. Um, what, what do you think you did right with this launch for, you know, so that listeners can learn from that? Well, I definitely did my research on on uh, on my covers. I think the covers are pretty spot on for the the genre. Uh, I do think, even though the, again the, the story wasn't perfectly on on tropes, I think that the structure of the story was pretty good. I think I I think I put together a decent urban fantasy story. It just wasn't close enough to the market. And uh, also, I think that I nailed the length. Like, I wrote these at a length that was sustainable for uh, a further rapid release. Uh, if I had chosen to do so. And I guess another thing that I did write about this was I knew to sort of bail out when I realized this wasn't a winner. So uh, th there will eventually probably be a book four and book five, but I, you know, created the year of six as a response to, okay, nobody likes this new thing. Let me do a couple of old things real quick. I think that probably one of the biggest takeaway I took from this, and it makes a lot of sense in hindsight, is that uh, not only did you probably lose like fans that could have gone and bought it on day one if they hadn't got it through the story bundle you must now have people that are like well when are book two and three coming out that aren't in the amazon ecosystem so i don't know if you've got an email i know i would have gotten <laughs> upset email from people that wanted the rest of it so i i did end up with at least two or three of those people coming over to the patreon and asking very nicely if they could get a copy of the book <laughs> i was like nope Okay, I could do that. It's disconnected from sales. It doesn't count as, as uh, an Amazon sale. No, and I that's why what I've learned with my stuff after having done it mistakes too is just to leave a series, you know, launch the series in Kindle Unlimited if I'm going to do that and do the whole series and then later take it all out together. Because um, I think that if you just do one and then you take it out and then a year later you do the next one and you want to put that in KU, that's you have to like bring the first one back in or you have to just accept that you're not going to be able to promote it. It gets a little confusing. All right. Um, so my first mistake that I'm going to share, it's actually more than five years old, but I don't think I've talked about it before. So you guys can place it anywhere in the timeline you like. Um, but when I was writing my first series, uh, this was The Emperor's Edge, and the novels were all well over 100,000 words. And I was still working at the day job then, so I wasn't writing as quickly. I was trying, my goal was to move from like 1,000 words a day to 3,000 words a day, but that was a transition that took a little while. And I decided since, you know, I was doing okay, I was still getting a novel out every five or six months, but I, I decided to start a series of novellas. So both because uh, people had told me, you know, your series is kind of steampunk. You should, you know, write some actual steampunk. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'll do that. And I'll try a series of novellas so that 
they'll be short so I can um, get them out in between the books and they wouldn't take as long to write. That was my reasoning. And I, it wasn't a horrible idea. I wouldn't necessarily say, no, don't do that. Don't do a release in between the longer things. But the length is what made them kind of a tough sell. Also, the fact that they, even though they were more embracing steampunk, they were kind of gadgety. The heroine in the first one makes a steam-powered dog sled, dogless dog sled, and enters a race in the Yukon. It was a fun story. It wasn't really like... Uh, traditional steampunk is kind of that Victorian England setting or, or Europe anyway. And here I am in the Yukon doing what, what, whatever with a uh, dog, dogless sleds. But um, the first one was about 17,000 words. The second one was 23,000 words. And I kind of realized I couldn't charge that much for them when my full novels of over 100,000 words were, I, I think they were 399 back then. I've since moved things up to 499. But I ended up selling the novellas for 99 cents, and I think one was 149, and maybe the third one was up to 27,000 words, so I charged 199. Eventually, uh, and I did, it took me a long time to finish the series of five um, because they wasn't weren't making very much money. You know, it's like you're getting horrible royalties because of that pricing. Uh, the last two were like around 37 and 40,000 words, so I charged 299 for them. I, you know, looking back, I mean, I don't have, I don't usually regret stories I've already written. I just move on and do something else. But looking back, it wasn't the smartest decision just because of that awkward length. And you, you know, you certainly can charge two ninety nine for whatever twenty thousand words. Let's say people do it all the time. But I always sort of think keep word count in mind and always wanting to give the reader a fair value. And uh, you know, if my novel novels were seven ninety nine, then maybe a two ninety nine twenty thousand word novella wouldn't be a big. Uh, deal, but I was still uh, very early in my career too, so I wasn't that confident of being able to sell things at higher prices. And I never wanted those reviews that are like, "This was too short, total ripoff." So basically, they took time to write. It was another series I had going on at the same time, and they weren't very big money makers. You know, it was okay, but looking back, I probably would have just focused on the novels and maybe getting them out a month earlier instead of taking a month to do this other project on the side. So I, I mean, you know, your yourself, but I, I think that, that, that's, it's just awkward to sell that stuff. I eventually bundled up the first three and it's like a three ninety nine omnibus, <laughs> you know, it's, it's okay. But I find that that stuff doesn't sell as well as just complete novels. And that's why that's almost exclusively what I write now. Very rarely I'll do a novella, but most of the time, anything under 40,000 words is just going to be a free bonus for my newsletter subscribers. All right. I'll stop that's, talking if you have thoughts. <laughs> that's a good way to go. Joe, do you have anything you want to add? Um, this was like, like before you did this, uh, like had you ever tried to write like a, a series of novellas? Like we, you've mentioned several times on the show that you've found that your shorter stuff does not proportionately take less time to write. It tends to take proportionally more time to write the shorter stuff. Did you know that yet at this stage? I knew very little at this stage and I'm not sure that that was that much the case then. I think now I've gotten faster at the novels and the, the short story novellas haven't sped up. I don't know. Um, but no, I didn't know that too. I think for the time investment, it'd probably be better just to write novels. But then I would have been taking longer in between the installments in the series. And the whole idea was to have something to release in between the real releases or the major releases. So, uh, you know, it's not like I had to do it once to 
figure out that it wasn't really the thing to do. But I, that's why now when people are like, I want to do serials or I want to publish really short things, I'm like, well, you can try it, but you'll probably find that you can just make more money overall if you just can write stories that are a little longer and that do feel like complete novels. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm at the point in my life where writing a whole novel is taking me like months. <laughs> so I'm like trying to decide where I want to go. Um, but there is, there are genres, and actually this is funny that you went this way with the end of your thoughts, that there are genres that do really well with shorter fiction. Um, and I'm like, how do authors... Uh, figure out what those genres are instead of, you know, inventing a, a genre that doesn't care for it. Cause I'm like historical Western romance. There's, I have tons of author friends who are making quite a bit of money off of 20,000 word novellas and their readers don't care that they're short. They don't get negative reviews about length. And I know that's not the only genre that does that. So, um, how do you help authors who are like, I'm just gonna, nobody's doing it. I'm gonna, you know, start it and help them recognize that maybe, let other people be the trail, pay, you know, the pavers of new trails or whatever. I don't know. I'm not saying it's not going to work for anybody. For me, I've just found that I make more money when I write full novels than I do. And it, like I said, Joe pointed out, I've talked about before. I don't seem to write the short stories. It's not like I just can knock them out in a weekend. For some reason, like I just did a 14,001 novelette. I guess that's not a short story. For a bonus for my newsletter peeps and peeps. Did I say peeps? <laughs> <laughs> so not uh, I don't think that's a trendy term. I derailed myself. But anyway, fourteen thousand words I didn't end up taking over a week by the time I was kind of letting myself relax because I'm waiting for my beta readers to send something back. But uh over a week to write it and edit it. So uh, you know, and I've written whole novels in that time when I'm really focused and I don't know, just rambling along. If if it works in your genre, you can try it. But I, I at the same time I feel like whenever Mark Coker has done his roundups of smash words, like this is what's selling best. You know, he posts the graphs. It's like always the novels over a hundred thousand words that are making the most money. So it's not that you can't do it, but you might actually make more if you wrote novels, but you have to decide how, how much time do you have? Like, can you not do a hundred thousand word novels? And it's probably better to do a series of novellas. And if they work in your genre, awesome. Uh, if you have written longer stuff in the past, readers might, kind of not enjoy shorter stuff if they are your dedicated readers and they expect longer stuff that may be tougher if you're newer if you're going into a new pen name uh you know that may be a time to try something short just to dabble and test the waters joe obviously you should have done a uh, twenty thousand word serial urban fantasy <laughs> to, to get started yeah that would have been that would maybe <laughs> <laughs> uh, i don't know andrea do you want to go on to your first thing yeah. Um, and I, you, again, like you said something that I was like, that's exactly what I was thinking. Cause like when I first started writing, you know, my books were about 80, 90,000 words long and that was just one series. And then I transitioned to 50,000 word books, which I've done consistently since then. And in the beginning, my books didn't do super well because my readers wanted the longer ones, but they're now trained to expect 40 to 50,000 word novels. And I call it a novel because it's, to me, it's a novel, you know, like Dean Wesley Smith, he's like 40 to 50,000 word books are his style. And if that's what you're doing, then any variation from that is probably not going to do as well. You know, anything that you're regularly doing. So people who do write short stories and that's all you do, you can, if that's, I mean, readers, there is a market out there who doesn't like, I mean, they prefer short stuff. Um, okay. So my, my first um, mistake that, and this is just something that's part of my personality and it's something that I'm trying to 
deal with. I've done better with it over the last year or so, um, which is why it's under mistakes made in the last five years and not mistakes made in the last year. Um, basically biting off more than I can chew. So I have a lot of drive and ambition when it comes to books. I'm always working on something or other under that umbrella, but I allow myself to get excited and distracted by um, other business projects very easily. So for example, we work with a local elementary school every year on books and art projects. You know, the kids help us come up with the topic and the themes and, and they help us come with characters. And, and I've absolutely loved doing that. Um, working with the school in general has been a great experience and I don't regret it. Um, but I should have kept it simple rather than jumping to new exciting ideas. So for example, um, one year I said yes to helping with a writing and art contest. Um, I should not have done that because I was already volunteering at the school and finding time for everything I needed to do back then was very difficult. Um, another year, one of the teachers moved to a younger grade and asked me to start visiting the younger grades too. And again, I should not have done that. Um, visiting the older grades was already hard enough. And um, we ended up promising a personalized, personalized books for the kids before I'd done my research into it. Um, and because I worked with Create Space, I ended up having over a hundred separate print books in my backlist. They're archived, but I can't delete them. And that just drives me nuts. Um, and it definitely didn't make back the time we put into it because of the hassle of uploading every single individual book. Um, honestly, I think I'd probably do it again with what I learned and I'd make money out of it because there was, there's a lot of money in personalized kids books. If you have a foothold in a local school, you know, um, but the problem is, it's not what I do on a general basis. And so I don't think I would make as much as if I were to just release another novel. Um, and it's not what I'm passionate about. I want to be writing novels, not doing personalized kids book for a local elementary school. And so basically, pretty much every year we've worked with that school, except one, I've said yes to an idea that really excited me, but that took a lot of time and didn't benefit us or the students enough for it to have been worth that time. And that's just, again, like I said, that's something I've been working on with my personality. I'm like, oh, that's such a fantastic idea. I'm going to do that. And then it just derails me. Um, I don't leave books, writing books, but I do have side projects all the time that don't benefit my life as much as I thought they would in the beginning. All right, bash me, guys, bash me. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say that I have the same shiny object tendencies. And I think it's just I've had to learn by doing it and having that realization also. I don't have a specific instance like that in mind. But I mean, even last week, like I told you, it took me much longer than usual to write that novelette. <laughs> I know it's not a short story. Um, but I had taken a day off after finishing the big sci-fi series. And I was like, I don't know, for whatever reason, I, I was like on YouTube, I was like, okay, I'm going to take the time to finally learn what the heck Bitcoin and blockchain and all that stuff is all about. So I went on this rabbit hole and I, I was interesting. I'm like learning stuff and, and like I, I now have clues, but it ended up being like a whole week of just, uh, you know, I was like listening to YouTube videos and, and kind of fascinated. Like, do I need to be buying Bitcoin? No, I should have bought Bitcoin five years ago. <laughs> you know, and I was like, I'm almost on this whole thing. Like, maybe I should have an account with this uh, Coinbase. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, maybe I should write my story and do the things that I already know make money instead of like, oh, should I do this? And then I've been on this like, oh, should I start a YouTube channel? And Joe and Andrea know last night, I was like, dude, guys, peeps. <laughs> I just I just ran across this guy's video. He does an investment channel and he's making like 250000 a month from YouTube ads. I need to start a YouTube channel. And um, 
So no, I'm, I mean, I may do that for my author stuff someday. I'm pretty sure dragons don't get the high paying ads, things about dragons. But so I, so I just want to say, I totally understand. I'm always like excited about like business opportunities, even though I have a business and it would be stupid to go off and pursue other things. Um, but uh, for myself, what I found, uh, I did the same thing with stories, you know, you know, writers, we're always like, oh, do I, I want to write this next series, even though I have four books left in this other one. So I write it down take all the notes I need to. Sometimes it's outlining a whole book. And then if I'm still excited about it in like three months, then I know, okay, that's something I should go ahead and do. But if it's like, oh yeah, I don't care about Bitcoin anymore. Whatever. I'm not going to go start lending people money on crypto.com or BlockFi or whatever it was. Um, then I, that time gives me time to realize, okay, no, that, that was just a passing fancy. I, don't need to invest that time in it. So I'm not always super wise, but I've gotten better probably the same as Andrea. That's a really good point. Um, because if you're really excited about something and if it's, I don't know, like that whole, if I don't do it now, the opportunity is going to be forever gone. The problem is, is by the time you have the idea and you implement it, then the opportunity is probably already going to be gone. And so if it's still not something that's viable two or three months later, then it's not worth your time. I, that's, something I'm going to need to tell myself. I need to write that on my mirror. <laughs> uh, and also just on the subject of, of biting things you know, more than you can chew, uh, there's a couple of different ways you can end up overburdened. And sometimes it can be that you're the kind of person who can only focus on one thing and you just start, you know, you get, you get Pat Pratt syndrome where there's six things you keep on cycling between them and don't make any process. But other times you can be a really efficient worker and you can have, you know, things running in parallel and you're getting them all done, but you find that you've completely consumed all of your time and you just set yourself up for burnout. Like you can be a tremendously productive person who's bitten off more than they can chew and not realize it until you have a two month, you know, crash because of it. So there's a lot of different ways that this can happen. Uh, you just described my life in two different ways, the pack route and the efficient. I'm like, I've got, I was lamenting. I've been lamenting to like my editor and my husband. I'm like, I've got so many really awesome things going on right now. And I can't juggle between all of them. So I'm like, just trying to figure out what I need to let go of, you know, like my YouTube channel for my gaming YouTube channel, which by the way, I'm not going to tell people what it is because I'm are you trying making to 250 my... tell us, are you making 250,000 a month on it? Cause we need to know if you are, <laughs> I am certainly not. I haven't reached a thousand subscribers yet. I've gone up by like 300 subscribers in the last two weeks though, because the gaming company that I, I do my channel for rec, what's the word recognize me as official con an official content creator for their game. And so I'm one of their reps now. And so that's been really, really exciting. And I've been getting all these really awesome opportunities over there, but I'm like, it just, so I don't, I'm like, I don't want to drop that because I do love it, but it was something to help me through my burnout. Cause I was like, I, I needed a hobby. I didn't have a hobby. And so now I'm like at the point now, I'm like, I've got responsibilities there now too. What am, what's, what is going on with my life? I need to just figure out how to, you know, tone things down without dropping balls, but drop balls end up getting dropped because you, you take on too much, you know, and that's the problem I've had, but I didn't include my gaming channel in my, in my list of mistakes I've made because it has been a really good experience for me. And as my editor told me on the phone the other day, when I was like, what do I do? She's like, these are very, they're, they're like your Midnight Chronicle series would be huge in with this audience. They would love it. So I haven't even told them 
what my pen name is. I haven't told them that I, what books I've written. And she's like, you need to start pimping your books to them that you've got this captive audience and you could actually get book sales from them. And I'm like, it's true, but that's not the purpose of that channel. So I have to find a way to, you know, I don't think they'd mind a mention here and there of my books, maybe a giveaway or something like that. So I got to, if I can find a way to help to monetize it, without it being sleazy monetization, <laughs> being like, hey, by the way, I created this channel just to get you guys to buy my books. That's <laughs> a lot of work for that. But anyway, so I, I just need to figure it out. All right. I guess it's my turn now. Um, we're going to talk about the children's book debacle. This is like every now and then you make a mistake that you end up thinking about about two nights a week. And this is one of those for me. Uh, I, when I started making money and I started to have the resources to do so, I sort of made a, a list of the different types of projects I'd like to make. And one of the things in there was a children's book. I didn't have any delusions about making tons of money on a children's book, just a fully illustrated, you know, picture book for kids. Uh, I, in fact, I was going to tie them to existing series just because I just wanted to play with those characters in a different medium. Uh, but I still wanted to do it. And I've worked on two of them now. And, uh, if you're not, if you've never tried to do this sort of thing, a children's book is one of the more expensive things you can do as an indie author. If you're doing fully illustrated, it's right up there with audiobook in terms of how much money you're going to spend on it, depending on how much, you know, the, the nature of your illustrator. Uh, I like art, though, and I like, I, I just wanted to try the fully illustrated book. Uh, I did my research and I picked some of the artists I'd worked with before. And I know that they did good work and that we'd worked well together. And I invested my money and I got started. One of the books is nearly done. There's a few more. You know, there's a couple more pages need to be inked and then a couple more pages need to be colored and then it's finished. That one even has some small interest in a potential release with a, with a print in like a children's book imprint already. Like the illustrator put me in touch with someone who might have capacity to do that. So there's legs on that one. The other one, uh, very unlikely it will see the light of day at this point. Um, I'm, I'm going to avoid giving out the personal information about the artist because I don't think that does anybody any good. So I was going to sort of do this short, vague version. Uh, a couple of years ago, we got this project started and did some preliminary work. And, you know, I checked all the, the boxes. We had a, a, you know, statement of work and we had a contract and things started off very well. I, I have the original email thread where they were doing daily updates on, on what I was getting done. As time progressed, though, the contra uh, contact between us became increasingly rare. And I found out that the artist was actually having some pro personal problems uh, uh, that, again, I'm not going to go into, but they were valid reason to be distracted. And so I was like, oh, you know, take your time, take your space. It's okay. There's no deadline on this. Uh, and then it continued to happen. Uh, it, uh, the contact got less and less. And uh, the, the artist stopped taking other con uh, other commissions. So basically, the artist started to to sort of vanish from the internet. And uh, months turned into years. We're about four years into this project now, and about a year since I've heard any uh, firm updates from this person. This person has not tweeted in a year. Like I don't know where they are. Uh, so it's again a pricey endeavor. We're talking uh, like I, this person. I only paid for work done. Like I saw the thumbnails of the work that was done. So I know that this person wasn't just taking my money and running away. Uh, but I don't get them until they're done and none of them got finished. And even if they did get finished, I can't use them until the whole book is done. So any money I sunk into this, and we're talking thousands of dollars, can't be spent anyplace else. And again, now I have a contract. I could get lawyers involved, but 
we're not talking enough thousand dollars for that to be financially viable. Like I will just basically take the money that I got that I gave to this person and give it to a lawyer and also just make everyone's life uncomfortable for years. So it just, I, I'm not that person. So that's not going to happen. There is still the possibility that this person, you know, will send me an email one day and be like, Hey, listen, I'm finally financially stable. Uh, I think I can finally take this project back on or here's your money. I'm sorry for, 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 you know, doing this, but that's certainly not going to happen during the pandemic. <laughs> so generally speaking, uh, this was a gigantic, uh, uh, comedy of errors, not unlike the, the book release I talked about earlier. When I make mistakes, I make clusters of mistakes. Uh, and really the mistake, I mean, a lot of this wasn't in my control, but a lot of it was in my control. I could, I should have been much more proactive about monitoring the status of the project. And as it became clear, the project was unlikely to progress. I should have gotten together with this person and talked about how to transition from them to someone else or to just sort of dissolve the project in a more amicable way. And I didn't do any of that. And now here we are. Yeah. Um, I, I married an illustrator. That's my only recommendation is <laughs> to marry an illustrator. But then the problem is, is if they can't finish it, then it can get even sticky for a, a marriage relationship. Um, but honestly, like last year at the business masterclass, the, the big authors there, you know, you know, like Kevin J. Anderson and Dean Wesley Smith. And um, I don't remember who else, maybe David Farland got involved. I can't remember who all, but all of them talked about um, legal pursuing legal things, you know, whether to sue somebody or not. And every single one of them said it is not worth it because the time, I mean, it, it saps so much of your attention and so much of your emotional emotions and your energy. I mean, I have a friend who, who sued, um, somebody for, you know, doing breaking the law basically. And she won ultimately, but it took like four years of her life and she was miserable during all that. And I'm like, she won, but was it worth it? it in my opinion, it's not. And it's that, but that feeling that, ugh, oh, if I could just get my money back, if I could just have things made right, sometimes it just doesn't, it's just not worth it. I've also had the experience of like amazing artists. I have one guy did like three covers for me and they were beautiful. Like I love illustrations that are very realistic and he did a great job and disappeared off the face of the planet, stopped updating his website, everything, did not respond to emails. So it's tough. I think at this point, if I was going to do some kind of project, because it's always fun, I understand why you were like excited about it. I've thought, wow, I'd be really cool to do like a graphic novel with one of my series. I, I would like, want to hire an artist for, you know, like on salary and have them doing nothing but my own thing for however long. I think that's the only way I would go forward with something like that at this point. It's just, it's super tough. The people who are really good and really reliable are really booked solid because I think they're such a rare breed in the industry. But yeah. Um, I guess I will jump into my next one. So this is a little more with my pen name stuff than with my regular stuff. But I've I've had the experience where I've caught myself writing things where, uh, you know, I've talked about before, I'm not a right-to-market person. I never really like what's popular and trendy, unfortunately. Like, like how great would it be to actually want to write about the things that are popular? But I've, I've you know, you see what's selling and I've, I've caught myself sort of like, nudging my thing, you know, taking a me idea and nudging, nudging it in that direction to try to like, well, maybe these will be a little easier to sell to that audience that likes all the popular things. And, you know, honestly, those have never done as well as when I just write 
the things that are completely and totally me and I'm not worrying about any, the market or, you know, can I, if I set this on earth instead of some made up planet, will it sell better? Will it attract more people? And some of my fan favorite stories are the ones that, you know, they have to have some commercial appeal like we've talked about, but they're, you know, they also tend to be with me different than what's out there. You know, I've talked about the one I did with the autistic heroine, the mom pilot searching for her kid. The most recent sci-fi series, the hero is a Jewish seizure-prone robotics professor, which is, a, I don't know about my sci-fi, it really tends to want to do the non-standard characters, which is pretty far from the Han Solo type of hero that's, you know, more popular in the genre. And these are, they're very me kind of quirky characters though. And I, I get really, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to like take something like that and fit it into the space opera trope and have a blurb that really sells. And if you don't have a blurb that's kind of to the market, it's a little harder to advertise it too, because people click on the, oh, cool spaceship. And then they start reading like, what? Geeky robotics professor. That's not what I want to read about. But I, you know, I've got such, such nice emails from readers with these stories when I give, you know, uh, especially if they, they are, they connect with that reader because they are that themselves and they've really struggled to find characters like that out there. So I have to remind myself, I am a weirdo and I'm probably writing stories for the other weirdos out there and it's really what I do best. And the more I try to pursue, try to get closer to the popular trendy stuff, the less I succeed and the less I make those fans happy. The, the good thing is, and I know this, and for some reason it still can be hard not to try to go, oh, this would be more commercial if it was like this. Um, the good thing is when you write sort of that quirky stuff for quirky people, that they tend to be really loyal uh, readers when you get them, if, if you satisfy them. Uh, and I don't know, I, I feel like people that are writing maybe just... I don't want to say formulaic. That's not what necessarily writing to market is. But uh, the more mainstream you are, maybe the more... I don't want to say interchangeable either. I don't want to be rude to people that write to market. There's nothing wrong with that. But I've just, there is at least a benefit of being weird and <laughs> writing stuff that uh, is not as, you know, mainstream, I'm going to say. Uh, so you can make a career. And I have to remind myself that you do perfectly well <laughs> writing just about characters that are like you and, and you know, in situations that are not the typical uh, for your genre. It can still work. All right, I'm done rambling if you guys have any thoughts on that. Joe, you can go first if you'd like to. Okay. Uh, yeah, I definitely think that uh, there's a thing about being genuine. And that's not to say, again, that you are necessarily being disingenuous when you write something to market. But when something is genuinely you, uh, you're going to get a smaller audience unless you are like the platonic ideal of a certain genre but uh the people that you do connect with you're going to connect with so much uh you know better you know it there's we talk a little bit about like we had an episode recently we talked a little bit of representation and how like certain types of people don't get written very often and uh you definitely get the email like i don't get letters from people who are like, oh, this was exactly like this, you know, this was exactly like Star Wars. You know, I don't get uh, letters from people, emails from people saying, oh, I love how similar it was to this thing that I also really like. It's always people who are like, this is the only book I can remember. Like, like my sci-fi series uh, is not mainstream sci-fi, really. There's no aliens. It's, it's listed as space opera, but it really doesn't have that scope until like the fourth or fifth book. But uh, apparently there's a book called The Stainless Steel Rat, which I am constantly compared to. And I'd never heard of it. I didn't, I didn't read it. I, I have read it since. It's, it's good. 
it is similar to what I write. But uh, just like I found that person, that author's entire audience that found my books for like, oh, another one. So like you end up with these people and they're going to tell all their friends like, hey, you, you, you like that book too, right? Well, listen, I got another series for you. So I think you're a lot more likely to get uh, word of mouth on the unique books because we've talked about how you have to give people what they expect in order to actually sell. But when you do stand out, it, it at least gets you talked about a little bit more. Yeah, definitely agreed. And honestly, I don't know, like, I think that something that we are trying to tell our listeners is that writing to market isn't bad. That's not what we're saying. Um, if you can write to market, if that, if you are passionate about what is being written to market, and if that makes you excited, then you're really lucky, honestly, because those are the authors who tend to, you know, do really, really well without as much work as what I do. Right. Um, but what we're saying is, write what excites you and what you're passionate about, and you'll do better in the long run. The chances of burning out when you're writing what you're enjoying are a lot lower than writing something just because it's going to be successful. I mean, there's a there's that happy, you know, where the circles overlap and you write what you love while trying to get it as much as possible to what readers want. And honestly, there's going to be genres where you're going to be closer to what readers expect than other genres. And so part of the challenge is figuring out what that is. And I will add that before you go, um, if you are going to write to market, I would really study the market and make sure you nail it instead of trying to blend. Like, here's my kind of quirky idea. Let me see if I can bring in some of the elements and because then you're not going to make anybody happy. I mean, so just do one or the other and uh, go with it. Okay, go ahead, Andrea. Sorry. You're fine. Um, okay, so I've got for the last, my last mistake I've made in the last few years. Um, the first one is just something brief. Um, and I've mentioned this before and it's not huge. It is huge for me because of my situation, but, um, not getting or trusting an assistant sooner. My first burnout that happened after the, my second kid was born, uh, was what really took a huge chunk out of my success. I was already working with my assistant, but I hadn't yet started handing off big things to her. And, um, it took me months to be able to trust her. And my recommendation is, um, if you're super busy, if you've got a really insane personal life, then see if you can find something while you're still <laughs> functioning, <laughs> someone who can help you take off some of the admin stuff that does drag you down. And I mean, the stuff that you only you can do that know the stuff that other people can help you with. Um, because if I had done that earlier, if I'd taken the advantage of some of, of Adriel, honestly, earlier, then my burnout wouldn't have been as bad and it wouldn't have slowed down my royalties as much as it did. And anyway, that's just a little thing for those of you who are, you know, kind of in a situation like mine. But honestly, something, and we talked about this last week, and I didn't realize this until while I was thinking about our episode that we recorded last week, but I should not have created a Patreon account. Um, and, and one of the biggest issues is spreading myself too thin, like I said, and, but it's really, really hard. And I know listeners, listeners are going to relate with this. It's really hard hearing other people have a lot of success or be super successful at something and then not be able to do it yourself. But just because others are successful does not mean we should or need to pursue it. And so it was like really exciting to hear about authors who had, you know, Patreon accounts that were getting them a thousand dollars a month or $10,000 a month or whatever. But that does not mean it is something that I should have been doing. Um, and so the best way to make money as an author is by releasing books. And if you're struggling to find time to do that, then 
put all of your extra time into writing books, not embarking on other endeavors, um, unless they're what you really want to be doing with your time. And, and, and unless writing and releasing new stuff isn't what's does that, that extra endeavor does not depend on you writing and releasing new stuff. So because for Patreon as an author, success usually is dependent on writing new stuff. And if, and I was already struggling with keeping up with a release schedule. And so starting a Patreon account was a bad choice on my, my behalf. And I actually went and opened it up today just to see where I was, where, where I'm at. And I'm down to like 19 Patreon supporters and $75 per creation release. And honestly, guys, it's just not worth it. And, and I spent a lot of time um, beefing that up and writing stuff that was just for Patreon that doesn't sell well on its own. And yeah, that's, that's just something I should not have done. So maybe those of you who is <laughs> like you're high after listening to our Patreon episode last week, now here comes reality. Don't do it. If you have a crazy life. <laughs> well, or do it like Joe's doing it. He's just putting stuff out and then he's going to publish it anyway. And me too. And you have to make that mistake sometimes before you learn from it. Because I was actually lucky that I did a Kickstarter pretty early on before I had a bigger fan base that would have been like, oh my gosh, like it was hard enough already, like signing paperbacks and, you know, having to just do all the, the extra stuff with the shipping and personalizing everything. But if it had some super successful one, you know, that was like a $5,000 Kickstarter, then it would have been like way worse. But that experience is what taught me now not to take on anything that's going to involve having to write extra fiction. Uh, even now, like I do the bonus stories and stuff, and I almost always gripe about them, but I'm like, well, it's part of the marketing, you know, they get on my newsletter to get the bonus stories. So it's worth doing. But almost every time I'm like, why did I promise them a bonus story? I'd rather just get on to the next thing. So just, you know, realize if you can, if you want to do it after we talked about it, you know, um, maybe design it in a way that anything you do on the Patreon is going to be something you're going to publish anyway. So you're essentially getting paid twice for, you know, the same amount of work. Uh, that'd be the way I try to put it together. But um, yeah, I think we all have to have that experience at least once before we realize, okay, I start to resent it when I take on extra things that take me away from the thing that actually brings in, has the most potential to bring in money. And, and that's a really good point because I, I intended for my Patreon to be something that I did already, but it grew so, so slowly in the beginning that I was like, you know what? I need to start writing Patreon exclusive stories. And I think that just being patient, you know, again, if I would just been patient and recognized that I, I can build my Patreon audience slowly, like molasses across a few years rather than writing stuff new for it. Because you're right, Joe. I mean, that's what you do, isn't it, Joe? Yeah, yeah. I have never really actively built the Patreon. It's always been just sort of a side thing to justify, well, you know, as I talked about in the past one, it's sort of a, a smaller side thing to have a couple of utilities, but otherwise sort of self-maintain. And I guess I'll, uh, I'll I'll say on the subject of uh, you mentioned uh, assistance, get personal assistance. We are indie authors, and most of the people listening to this show are probably indie authors. And you are accustomed to doing all of the work yourself. And uh, it's important; it's absolutely important to realize the things that could, are better off delegated. Like even if you're not in, you know, at the point where you feel you can afford or justify getting an actual uh, like a full time assistant or even a part time assistant, there are certain things you can get freelanced. Uh, for very affordably, if you are not good at making paperbacks, if you're not good at formatting paperbacks and you don't have, you know, uh, vellum or like that, you can very affordably find somebody who'll turn a manuscript into a paperback for you. Uh, if you're not good at, like, just so, so many little small parts 
of uh, of the author process that you could easily hand off to to a to a you know a vendor, uh, and that's not a you know it's a small step, and it, the amount of time you save for that investment can be enormous. One small step for man, one giant leap for no. But yeah, Fiverr, for example, there's people on Fiverr who will format print books for fifteen dollars, and they look good. So I'm yeah, like Joe said, you just sometimes it takes a little bit of work to find those people, but once you do, you know they're going to be around for a while, and it'll save you so much time and so much stress, and you don't have to do it all. Like you don't, you don't have to, honestly. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and talk about mistakes that we've made in the last year, just so that especially, um, you know, hounding in, hounding in, pounding in, hammering in the fact that we still make current mistakes. <laughs> go ahead, Joe. Okay, this is a problem that uh, I'm sort of experiencing like now, like uh, just minutes ago. Uh, misplaced focus has been a problem for me this year. Uh, I've been, it's been, pr- it's pretty clear if you listen to any of the episodes that being an indie author is an entire job and writing is often not even the biggest part of that job. So you, you end up needing a marketing plan. You need to keep your audience engaged. You need to learn about current trends and research markets. Your plate is always full, but if you're not writing, you don't have a product to sell and that's a problem. So uh, I fell into a bad parter- pattern earlier in the earlier parts of this year where I was really dragging my feet on the writing part of writing. I was digging myself into research and doing A-B testing on a bunch of different advertising platforms. And I was like, sort of, here's what works for me here. Move on to the next one. Here's what works for me here. And I was focusing very intently on a series of small tasks that were all important on their own. Uh, and then sort of setting them aside, moving on to the next one. And... I was really starting to miss my quotas on writing. Like my writing was really starting to fall behind. So I decided in the last few months, I was going to try to turn that around. Come hell or high water, I was going to get my words written. And I have been successful for sure. Uh, I've been, you know, my quota is only 3,000 words, which I say only. A lot of people are saying, I wish I could hit 3,000 words a day. And others are saying, how the heck do you have a career only writing 3,000 words a day? So it takes all kinds. But my quota is 3,000 words. And I have, like, on a day that I have decided I am writing, I haven't missed my quota in a little over a month. And prior to that, I hadn't missed my quota, you know, more than two or three times in the preceding month. I've been doing very well in terms of uh, of keeping to my quota. However, it has been to the detriment of literally everything else I need to do. Like I have been like, nope, sorry, my words aren't done yet. I'm not going to work on that advertising thing yet. Nope, sorry, my words aren't done yet. I'm not going to do that pre-order setup yet. And it has uh, it has taken its toll. Uh, none of it's irreversible. All of it is going to, you know, can be solved. But it's one of those things where I felt like I was doing the right thing. This is what I guess what I got to do. I got to get the book written. Uh, and, and, uh, it turns out there's two problems because when you become so hyper-focused, uh, you end up with an unbalanced schedule and you feel the pain, but also, and this is very important, uh, if you don't take your own mental health into consideration when you're putting together your schedule or making the requirements on yourself, uh, it's going to be a bad time. I know from my college years that if I let things get too far out of my control and I start to feel overwhelmed, I hit a wall. And this hasn't happened, but it's sort of how it all started. <laughs> when I started to lose track and lose my words, it's because I was feeling overwhelmed. And I tried to remedy that by focusing. But when you focus and fall behind, then you'll just be overwhelmed again in a few months. So it's a problem that I'm going to have to ta- tackle, basically. And I was talking about productivity apps earlier uh, before we started recording. 
I'm going to have to basically uh, time slice myself a little bit better, where either I set up admin days or admin hours or otherwise just make sure I'm getting elements of all of my checklists written and done at the same time, even if that means decreasing my quota, or even if that means just sort of spreading my week out to have a certain number of days on and off. That's funny. It's like you're looking forward to the weekend because you're going to get so much done. But when the weekend comes, you're like, breathing is fun. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Lindsay, did you want to go first? Well, I would say I'm also the hyper-focused type. I, I actually, it's good that I write quickly because I also tend to, when I'm buried in a project, I'm like, email gets left beside. I, I only answer the emails that are like, I have to because I'm like, here's my cover designer or an editor. It's just uh, urgent, you know? And then I, I'm like, oh, I'll catch up on the other ones later. And I, unfortunately, this happens to be the case where I often, if it's been a couple of weeks, I just don't get it that far back in the inbox. And I like, I need to put a big note on my contact form that's like, like, hey, if you don't hear from me in a couple of weeks, try again. Because sometimes I answer right away. It just depends. If I'm on a project, I tend to put everything else aside. And honestly, that's when I'm happiest. It's just being in my little writing cave, completely ignoring all the other stuff. Um, but then I do take admin days, uh, usually a couple of days in between projects. And I'll try to catch up on the email as much as I can. Uh, do the things like setting up pre-orders, writing blurbs. I as a series writer, I really only need to focus a lot on advertising and that stuff around the launch of a book one. I subsequent books in the series, I'm just like, hey, here it is, <laughs> you know, to the newsletter subscribers. Uh, of course, I've set things up to always have newsletter subscribers be coming in, uh, you know, to get the bonus stuff I was talking about before. So that's as long as the books are selling, that stuff the newsletter subscribers accumulate and I'd have somebody to announce the new releases to. So it is sort of a cycle or a, I don't know what you'd call it, a factory almost, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think we all struggle with that. I, I know I have a hard time being like, I know some people like write in the morning for two hours and then do their admin stuff and add ads and everything in the afternoon. I'm like, oh, I, I don't want to do that stuff. I've, you get two days between projects and I'm going to do all I can then and then go back to what I really like doing, which for me, and it's going to differ for people what the thing is that they really like. Because I think some people honestly enjoy making spreadsheets and uh, working on the advertising stuff more than writing the stories. They like having written the stories, <laughs> you know, which I think a lot of us also have that feeling sometimes. But yeah, it's, it's something I think we all struggle with is finding the time. Even if you do have an assistant, usually I think most people right now are still kind of running their own ads. They've Even if they've tried to hand it off, they've realized, I have to pay that person a lot of money. And it's such a thin margin on ads that it, it can be tough to make that work out. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes, I don't remember who said it, so it's not that much of a favorite quote apparently. But he said that... Um, in order to be successful, you need like, basically, you're never going to find a good balance between everything. Like success usually means pushing really hard and neglecting area, other areas of your life. And so I don't know, like, you know, getting those words written is really, really important. Um, but like what Joe said, if, if it comes at the expense of advertising, sometimes you do have to take a break from writing to make sure your cells are doing. So when you do release a book, it does something, you know? And I mean, it's, it's been hard for me lately to get even little things done because, you know, kids and stuff. And plus you know, the health things, I'm a lot more focused now. Um, now that I've kind of settled into, you know, my tests have mostly been done and I'm just waiting for my follow-up appointment in a couple of weeks. And so I'm n more settled in before hearing what the doctor has to say, you know? Um, but 
it's just, it's, it's difficult, you know, and I, and it's nice to know that both of you guys, you do struggle with that. Cause I mean, especially I think our listeners will appreciate hearing that, that the powerhouse right turner person named Lindsay does have moments where she's like, who's shiny <laughs> or, you know, having to take admin breaks and, and getting stuff done because honestly getting those ads going or getting that, that wheelhouse going, like Lindsay was saying, where people are going into your subscriber list, your newsletter list, that is going to keep your books doing well. And so taking a day or two to get that sort of thing set up so it's evergreen and going constantly, I, I think it's worth it to take time off of writing just to do that. The problem I find is I'm always finding something that's worth taking time off writing to get done. And so I have to draw a line somewhere because if I'm not producing a book, you know, then I'm not as happy. Anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling. I do think it's good if you can set up the evergreen things that kind of constantly, you know, that's why I like having some of the free book ones out there. It's like people keep downloading those even when I'm not advertising them. They're just out there looking for free stuff, especially right now. And yeah, the conversions are not great, but some amount of those people do go on to buy their others in the series. And that's the easiest, least time consuming thing I can do. I know a lot of authors are like, I'm not giving anything away from free free. I'm like, well, by me having that book one for free out there, and maybe every now and then I take 10 minutes and you get a free book CA sponsorship, you know, that means I don't have to sit over here and spend all this time fiddling with ads and doing other things. So it's, and the bigger your catalog gets, the more books you've already written, they're already paid for, they've already earned out. So it's less of a thing to make some of them free. And that's not the only thing I do, but it's, it's a lot of them. I'm always willing to give away free stuff. I, uh, was just, you know, me I mentioned on Twitter that I was like looking at the people who I have a newsletter that I, I paid the premium to have their like newsletter, subscription newsletter, I guess you would call it, or I support them on Patreon, Patreon. And all, every single one of those people that I support and pay that extra money for, like way more than you would pay for a book, uh, it's because they have, given out so much amazing free content that I'm just like, I'm a super fan. Of course, I'm going to give you $10 a month for, you know, extra access to more of your stuff. Even if it's, it's almost the same stuff they put out for free. I'm just like, but I don't mind. I want to support them. They've made me a fan. So that was a little off the topic. <laughs> Do you guys have any more thoughts on uh, the topic that was becoming hyper-focused <laughs> on balancing your schedule? No, no more, more comments, Joe. No rebuttals. Rebuttals. <laughs> no, I always agree with the advice I'm getting because I typically assume people are smarter than I. Am. <laughs> I think we've just all been there at this point. We've all been doing it long enough. To, <laughs> we all have the same problems. So if you guys listening have these problems too, you're not alone. Okay, um, this will be the last one for me. Uh, a mistake I've made this past year, and I've talked about this before a little bit, but I spent way more than necessary on my Death Before Dragons uh, covers. Uh, like Joe, I was going into urban fantasy for the first time. And I was like, I'm just going to throw as much money as I can at this. Well, more than typical for a launch to try to make them awesome. You know, I think they ended up being over $2,000 by the time you factor in the paperbacks too. And usually I'm more around... Uh, maybe 800, I think, for my like my illustrated sci-fi books, and then I have a lot of stuff that was just Photoshop manipulation uh, covers, where the you just paid maybe had to pay 20 extra bucks for the the models, and then maybe two 200, 300 from the cover designer. And there's really no reason I couldn't have done that for this urban fantasy series. My reasoning was I wanted to give myself a good shot, and I also wanted to not use the same stock models that everybody uses. Even though I've had perfectly fine success, I've talked about my Dragon Blood series before, which are like the cheapest covers, you know, just because cover prices have gone up too. Um, but and they're not even 
that to market because it was early on and who knew what the market was for steampunk slash high fantasy. I don't know. So I, you know, if you have the money, that doesn't necessarily mean you should spend it. <laughs> it's tempting once you start making more, you're like, oh, just, you know, spend money on whatever. But actually, you know, having that sort of lean startup thing in mind, just always doing it for, you know, like I try to make sure that everything pays for itself. I don't, you know, like the audiobooks, I make, you know, I'm, make sure that I'm like, okay, did that actually end up paying for itself? It's like, okay, I've at least broken even on that. Even, you know, so I'm not taking money from things that do well to fund the things that uh, don't do well. And, you know, it's turned out fine. Those have all earned out since then in the last six months. Um, I also spent a lot of advertising though on the first month or two. Cause like I said, I was like, I want to make this stick. I want to do it as well as I can, you know, try to get a whole bunch of new urban fantasy fans. And I, you know, I had done book one at 99 cents and left it there for a couple months and was like, I'm going to bid whatever I need to bid on ads to get in that top spot. And, you know, it's just, it took longer to earn out than it should have because I, I sunk a lot into the launch by my standards. And, you know, now, um, I'm about, I just published book six today. So it's about six months since the, the series launched. And I bumped book two, book one up to $2.99 and I low went in and lowered the cost of the, you know, my bid on the Amazon ads. I've still got money more, you know, about 3000 a month going to that book one, which is more than I've spent in the past, but the book's making about 5000 a month. And I don't pay for anything now that the covers are paid for for the rest of the series. So I'm fine paying with that. It's actually the first time with Amazon ads I've had that experience where I can make book one make more than I spend on the ads. So I'm letting them run. In the past, I've just kind of turned everything off or almost always off because, I, like I said, when you're writing something that's really not quite as much the market, it's a little tougher to make the ads do well and you you get into this situation where you have to calculate, well, am I making enough on the sell-through? Uh, it's obviously easier if you can just make more on book one <laughs> than you're spending on advertising. And that's, this one is, it's not to market, but it's, it's in the ballpark of, it's, you know, I, I was careful not to go too far out there with, with this series. So anyway, that's a ra long rambling way of saying, I really did not need to spend that much money on the covers. I let my ego get in the way to some extent, like some of it was like, I want to give myself a good shot. And someone's like, you know what? I have this podcast. People are going to be watching my launch. So I want to have these cool covers and I want to not suck and not have a horrible sales ranking in this new genre I've never written in before. Um, so there you go. Ego is always uh, something to worry about, even if you've got everything else figured out, which I don't necessarily have everything else figured out. But uh, anyway, any thoughts <laughs> before we move on? Uh, I think that uh, like, especially like, oh, I paid too much for covers or, or something like that. I think one of the biggest things you learn over time, uh, if you're running your own business in any way, shape or form, but certainly uh, when you're an indie author, is you start to recognize how much is enough. Like you start to understand uh, what your what value you're going to be getting out of something. And uh, I, I collaborated on a book, which might still come out, but certainly not with my name on it anymore. Uh, a, a long time ago, and the the author I collaborated with was absolutely certain that we need to have a cover done by somebody who charged five thousand dollars per cover. And I was like, uh, I don't know that anyone's going to buy this cover because of who made the cover. And the, the the quality of art is exceptional, but I 
have a guy who does art that's like that for $700, not 5000 But he was absolutely certain that like, no, it's just the gold standard. We're going to do the absolute best. And I think it's a really important thing that you can learn that like, no, good enough is good enough. And, and you know, no need to, to, to go overboard if, if you can get where you need to go with a certain amount of money. Yeah. And I don't know, like book covers, you know, getting something that meets expectations, even if it is a familiar model is, is important. And as authors, we're like, ah, but so-and-so and so many other people also use that model. That's something that I ran into too, but I'm like, we're tempted to, you know, do something that breaks the mold. And sometimes even if it is the same model, it's more important to just, you know, I mean, I'm going to actually talk about book covers here and my next mistake. So <laughs> I'm not going to go much more in depth into that. But uh, ego, honestly, like I've mentioned, worrying about what our listeners would think if I put a pause on writing. Um, so I mean, what the heck, you know, I don't want to stop writing because it makes me happy. That was what my ultimate decision was. But why did I even fat? Why did listeners factor in on that? It's just part of that part of having a podcast, you know, um, and also having my midnight chronicles fell was hard on my e- ego and admitting it fell was even harder. It's, it's tempting to sugarcoat things and make things sound better than they are, especially when you have people who do listen. But I don't know, Lindsay, like you've come on top. I'm still waiting for my series to come on top so that it's not, you know, it doesn't turn out to be a waste of money for me. <laughs> well, we were going to rewrite the blurbs, right? We talked about that couple times ago maybe <laughs> give it yeah that's a nice thing at least with writing it's not like you can't later go back and like relaunch a series or if you become more successful later you can always channel your new readers into the old series like i mean more successful in the way of like if your next series is a hit uh you can throw it in the back of by the way while you're waiting for book four i have this other series that you've probably never heard of before but you should go check it out so uh the, as long as you're getting stuff out and it's good. The stories are good. You know, you don't have to give up just because maybe the launch didn't go as well as you wanted. Like actually this series, I was kind of down on it after the launch because it didn't stick you guys. And it didn't stay in the top 10 for all of urban fantasy for months. Like I wanted it to, but now, I mean, the last time I checked today, like obviously I'm spending money on it for ads, but I've done that before and not <laughs> had any results, but the first one's around 2000 in the store, you know, and it's six months later. And, um, like I said, I'm spending money on the ads, but that, like I've always been willing to spend money on the ads if they convert. <laughs> they don't <laughs> you always get, you know, the book ones are just not maybe quite, I, I always feel like I have to get people to try them and then they get into my stuff. But uh, despite trying to do the best blurbs and the best covers I can, that is the challenge when you're not as quite as much to the market. You know, we had um, KM Shea, we did that Ladies Who Launch episode. People should check that out if they haven't. And that she, I think she just did stock art covers and, uh, she killed it. You know, her stuff totally sucked. She had the vampire paranormal romance kind of thing, urban fantasy at the same time that really seemed to be what the readers wanted. And so that's always awesome if that happens. <laughs> and if it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you can't still, you know, it's still like the series is doing well this summer. I have, I have no complaints. So, uh, hopefully you'll have that experience too, or you can relaunch it and give it another try. Um, you know, sometimes just letting something lay fallow for a while and going back to it with fresh eyes too, it, it can help for structuring of relaunch. 
Yeah. And that's the good thing about being an indie author. Like it's not the end of the world for us. If we were traditionally published, that series would have sunk my name and I would have had to start a different pen name if I wanted to move forward. And I'm almost done rewriting that description. <laughs> it's like two weeks later, and I still haven't finished it. Um, do you um, go ahead, Joe, did you want to add into that? Uh, no, I think, I think, uh, I think I covered my point. Okay. Um, okay. So yeah, um, I've talked about my last launch a lot, but there is one aspect of it that I haven't really mentioned. So, um, when I was struggling with book covers, I reached out to five cover designers. Um, cause I, you know, I did my own book covers like four or five times and for that series and hated them all after loving them for like one or two days. Um, and I reached out to five cover designers. I had a huge, I was under a huge time crunch. The series had already launched. I'd already put a lot of money into it. It wasn't going well. And I was like, I, I need to get, I know it's the book covers. I need to get these fixed. Um, and I had my absolute all time favorite of, of them all. Um, he was a good price. He was talented. I had friends who recommended him. Um, but instead I picked the cover designer who re responded first. I was worried that my favorite wouldn't get back to me because, and actually three of them never did ever respond to me. But if I'd taken a step back and breathed and waited eight hours before answering the first cover designer's email, I would have saved $1,200. Um, I ended up having that favorite cover designer because I was like, okay, I don't want to lose the opportunity of working with him. So I had him work on other book covers that I needed to be redone in the meantime. And then when I decided to change the covers again for the Midnight Chronicles, I asked him to do them. Um, and I've been much happier with the results. And this is actually something that something that I need to mention here. He used 3D models for the for those covers. And I was like, Ugh, I hate 3D models. They're horrible. But you know what? Readers don't care as much as authors do. They care that, that, that those covers elicit an emotional response that matches what's in the book and that draws people to those books. You know, they don't care that there's a 3D cover on 3D person on the cover. And I think that authors, we care more than the readers do generally. And if the book cover, I mean, the book cover is a marketing piece. It's not, it's not a masterpiece. And so if it's doing its job and bringing readers in, then it's working, then it's fine. If it's not, then it's not. And like, why break something that's broken? Um, anyway, so I just, I don't know that my takeaway is give all the big, big decisions at least 24 hours or overnight before you make your choice because covers, they're expensive. I really wish I'd waited. I really wish I hadn't gone with the very first person to respond. Um, I wish I'd waited until, you know, at least a day until the guy I really wanted to work with answered. And I didn't, if I'd waited, you know, even just eight hours, I would have been under contract with him instead. And that would have gone a lot better. And waiting eight hours, I could have gone back to that first designer if he never responded and then worked with her anyway. Um, and another takeaway, reach out to one designer at a time. I didn't have that luxury though, because of the time crunch, you know, the Shadow Prophet had already been released and I knew the covers were hurting downloads in the middle of a huge launch. But um, in general, it's, it's really it's just worth the time to reach out to one person at a time and to make sure the covers are what you really want before you put a lot of money into something. Um, and honestly, the covers the other designer did were better than the ones that I'd done myself. So maybe it wasn't the end of the world. Um, but with all the health problems my baby was having at the time and all the money I'd already put into the launch, that those, those $1,200 really hurt. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I definitely feel like, and this is something I've grappled with a lot too, is like occasionally I got to like write it down. Uh, there's a person I follow online who had a problem with arguing with fans and he would, he had a a little marble statue that said, do not engage. And he put it on his desk. And he's like, anytime he feels like answering an email angrily, do not engage. I got to have a thing that just says, take a breath. Because very, very seldom uh, is a, is a, career-changing decision, the sort of thing you have to make like that. And occasionally, if I have a good idea or I feel that I've made a mistake, I start getting into a tizzy about it. I got to do something immediately. And fairly frequently, it could benefit from a couple of just, just give it a second. It's not going to end the world if you don't do this right now. Make sure it's the right thing. And yeah, like we talk about how being nimble is one of the things that, that indie authors have above, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> traditionally published authors. I lost the word for a moment there. But uh, being too nimble means you just go jumping off cliffs, which could be a problem too. Well, and, I, and I had the same kind of experience this year with the covers weren't getting done fast enough. Like I was ready to release and I didn't have the cover yet. So I'm kind of, I'm always happiest when I have like the cover weeks ahead of time. But that's the challenge when you write quickly. <laughs> Sometimes you write more quickly than the artists are able to do the work. Uh, so that's another reason, another time when just doing the Photoshop manipulation kind of covers are going to be probably the best way to go because usually the, de the designers can get those done pretty quickly in compared to like a custom art piece or even, you know, the one, these ones I have are... Uh, was they did we did a photo shoot they found models you know and then he does the illustrated background they're really cool i, I don't have any regrets on that place i just don't know that spending all the extra money was really like resulted in a whole bunch of extra sales but uh the time thing i guess uh, if you don't give yourself enough time you're more apt to make decisions that maybe are not the wisest ones and i, I still don't quite know what the answer is with covers when you write quickly uh probably the photoshop manipulation stuff is, is just easiest or getting uh, illustrations that aren't so tied into the story that it's okay if they don't quite match the story you end up writing. Because I've definitely ordered like the spaceship illustrations before where I'm all, you know, I'm like, well, there's going to be a battle at a space station. You just make it look cool. And it's like, it's not exactly how the battle was, but it's close enough. Uh, I will say the readers do care <laughs> just to argue with andrea uh the diehard fans are like uh, yeah that doesn't look at all like how i imagine the character but that's just you have to accept that i mean i've been a fan of books for you know however many years where traditionally published stuff is not at all like the character is <laughs> like that's just how it is sometimes the job of the cover is just to sell the book and you know if it matches up well great if not oh well um, hopefully it sold books and then people read them anyway. And then it gives them something to discuss in fan forums, uh, how the character's hair was the wrong color. Um, yeah. When we had the ahead. cover designer on, um, I don't know if you guys remember, but she was like, the hair color doesn't matter. And I was like, well, my series, it does because their magic is based on their hair color. And if I get that wrong, that's a huge thing. And not just to readers, but it's just, I mean, they I mean, I would have heard had really bad backlash because you know, it's the hair color was so important. Um, are you but guys? Those are people that already bought the book that care. Yeah, <laughs> the people yeah. who are thinking about it aren't checking the sample chapters. Ah, let me check here. Is that <laughs> actually the hero on the front? I don't think so. I'm not buying this book. No, and you make a good point because like diehard fans are going to buy the book anyway, and they're the ones that are going to care the most. And and readers who haven't read the book, you know, they're they're going to go back and go like, wait a second, that was the wrong hair color, you know. But they they're still they they're probably if they enjoyed it, they're probably going to continue reading even though the hair color is wrong. 
Um, do either of you guys have anything to add before we wrap up? Nope. I guess we'll get to listener questions in a future episode. We have a few we keep putting off. I thought we were going to go short on this show. I don't know why I always say that. Okay. I, I'm done. Thanks for listening, everyone. It was uh, good to talk about how much we sucked this week. <laughs> yeah. And I wasn't even going to mention the reader, the listener questions, because I'm like, oh, we've mentioned them every week. We're going to have to get to them next week. We're going to have to get to them this week. We just didn't get to them. Um, but we will do a Q&A episode, you know, just like where it's all Q&As and because um, we've got a bunch of those in the Facebook group. Um, Anyway, so yeah, thank you everyone for listening and thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. Um, you can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. If you do have questions for us, come to the Facebook group. That is probably the best place to ask the questions. We have a, a post up where you can ask your specific questions, but you can also ask, also ask general group questions or general author questions. And sometimes getting a whole bunch of different answers from people other than us is, other than us is beneficial. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's pretty much it. Thank you again, everybody. And we will talk to you all later. Bye. Bye-bye. So long, everybody.